The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So last week um, we moved into a new section in Ajahn Sumedho's book. The center section is about practicing in daily life. <clears throat> For the last month or so, we were on the second part of the book, which had a lot to do with sitting practice. And now, how do we practice Dhamma, which is often how the Buddhist teachings are referred to as Dhamma. Dhamma in, in Buddhism has sort of two basic meanings. More generally, it refers to the teachings that the Buddha gave, and then people practiced. Meditation instruction, we could say. And, uh, but more specifically, it points to what is seen when we undertake those instructions. So Dhamma, the more specific meaning of the word Dhamma is that it's the way it is, the way things are. So the nature of things when we're not confused by our concepts, our filters, and there's a more direct opening in any moment of our life, then we say, that's an opening to Dhamma, seeing Dhamma, seeing things as they are. So when we take practice, the practice of Dhamma, seeing things as they are into our daily life, I mean, we do that when we formally sit. We try to open to the breath, to the body, to thought as it actually is. And then we do the same thing in our daily life practice. It's really the same. It's just the conditions that we're practicing in are different. And the chapter we're on now, chapter 15, is called The Science of Goodness. And I like this, I like this phrase that Ajahn Tomato has, the science of goodness. Just understanding, um, like how, how and what role does goodness, how is a human being good, like what does that mean to be good as opposed to bad, and what is the effect of being good? Now, most of us, probably in this room, are, think it's good to be good. <laughs> but how many of us have made a science of it? Like a science in, the, in terms of our own lives. Like really looking, well, what, what did I do today? What moments did the heart, mind seem like it was being good? And what moments did it feel like it was being bad? I know that sounds a little dualistic. So Arjun Smedo gives us, uh, I think, a good definition. He talks about how he has, as a human being, we have this, this general tendency, um, if we're not practicing, to sort of slide down into our instinctual behaviors, basically living like an animal interested in survival. And as human beings, a lot of that for us is psychological survival, meaning I'm interested in the survival of my opinions and the, the survival of, of how I imagine you think of me, you know, and wanting that to be a particular way, as opposed to just getting my next meal or mating or some of the other things that drive more of uh, the other animals. They still drive us, of course. Um, to some degree, but we also have these other instincts of psychological survival, 
And of course, when we're in that mode, that survival mode, whether it's physical survival or psychological survival, then it very quickly justif we justify all kinds of fear and competitiveness and uh, hoarding, you know, and feeling like I got to get it before somebody else gets it, but there's not enough. And if I'm not careful, I'll end up with a short stick. And so Ajahn Tamedo says we can slide in that direction. And of course, if we do, if we do end up pretty much living out of that survival mentality, then it's really the mind is filled with fear. It's not a very pleasant place to abide when we're in that place. And the human mind, human heart has the capacity to rise out of that, I guess you could say. And uh, instead of sort of moving through the world in terms of what I can get, we can move through the world with this, uh, the eyes of compassion and wisdom. Like, as we move through the world, we're understanding, that's really what's going on, we're understanding how it is and responding with compassion. That's a different way, a different orientation. Another way you could think of it is that um, when we're bad or unskillful, we have a, a self-centered orientation. So we're seeing the world from the perspective of a self who has needs, that has needs, and is afraid of not fulfilling those needs, not getting everything we want or need. And when, we're, when we've risen above that, then we have eyes that are not colored by self-centeredness. And so that's compassion. And the reason we want to make a science of goodness is what I think we all know, and why that's why I did this uh, short reflection at the beginning of our sit, just to think about moments where we noticed that we felt like we were being good or somebody else was being good, acting in a wholesome way. We want to notice the connection between energy and goodness in our lives. And in Buddhism, there's a real connection between joy and energy. In a way, they're synonymous terms. So wholesome energy is joy. We feel enlivened. And uh, when we're being generous, when we're acting from that, relatively speaking, selfless place, it's the energy is enlivening. And when we're fearful and acting from a self-centered place, the energy's dead deadening. And it's good to reflect on that, to really get that basic principle. Because then we see, we move beyond this sort of moralistic sense that we need to be good, we should be good, we'll be punished if we're bad, to this very pragmatic understanding that goodness is its own reward. So it doesn't matter if anybody sees that we're good. Just being good is its own reward. It's enlivening to be good. In a way, that's a de that can be a definition of being good, that which is enlivening. Now, it, it's not so easy, of course, it never is, because, you know, if we all decided we were going to break into Wells Fargo, you know, and we got our black, black caps and <laughs> black outfits, 
and snuck over to Franklin Avenue, we would probably feel enlivened a little bit. <laughs> the energy, you know. But if we if we took the time to look at that energy, it would feel really heavy and contracted. So it's confusing. Danger can masquerade as feeling alive, you know. And if you look at what human beings do, we do a lot of dangerous things. Even, you know, eating spicy foods is a very mild form of dangerous things. We do a lot of sort of things to stimulate energy, to give us a sense of being alive. You know, we're married and yet we flirt, even though we have no intention of you know, getting involved in another relationship. But we play the edge, you know, in all the different mild, subtle ways that we might do that, just even if only in our own mind, even if we don't even act it out. Or whatever it is that we do. Because in a way, as human beings, we're desperate for energy. I remember some teacher, I forget who it was, said, we're all suckers for a little energy. You know, we are. Just look at the coffee business. So this is a good reason to have a science of goodness because it shows us a very direct and stable way to energize our lives in a wholesome way, a stable kind of wholesomeness. The thing about doing acts of goodness, living in with this, uh, this orientation toward selflessness as opposed to self-centeredness is it, it sort of has a feedback mechanism. So if, you know, somebody came in to the center and there was somebody new and feeling a little awkward, you know, not knowing what the protocol was for a meditation center, you know, and you just, you, you came in and you just wanted to sit and get settled, you had a busy day. And, but you saw this confused person, and you took the time. And maybe it was somebody that you would normally not even want to interact with, whatever that means for you, right? And you just take the time to sort of introduce yourself, ask if they are new, ask if they want to know where the bathroom is, tell them about the shoe thing, you know, talk to them about where they can sit, ask if they have any questions. So if you do something and, and you get a sense that the person really appreciated your time, your efforts, well, even in that moment of seeing uh, your willingness to let go of your self-centered intention to just have some quiet time, you know, that's a relatively wholesome self-centered intention to just, you know, want to be left alone, to sit, to let go of the day. But to see that you had the capacity to let go of that and to instead do something you didn't really want to do, but it felt like the right thing to do. And that's sort of ennobling. And then all of a sudden we have this energy of like, wow, this heart's kind of nice. It's, uh, it's something I can trust to do the right thing, even when it doesn't want to. And now that's not necessarily something you're going to actually say in your mind. But energetically, we sort of see that. We, we, uh, we respect that about ourselves, about the heart. We trust it then, or have respect for it. And then every time we remember that, 
it's also a source of energy. You know, even 20 years later, like maybe some of us, when we were reflecting on something good that we've done, maybe for you it was something many years ago. And so even though maybe 20 years ago, the memory still uh, packs a little punch. We feel good, even 20 years later. And of course, when we remember one good thing, there's this sort of uh, sympathetic resonance and we start remembering other good things and then remembering the good things around us. In Buddhism, uh, in the the, um, practice, we call this mudita, where we appreciate the goodness around us. And I remember reading once, the Dalai Lama says, this increases our odds of happiness by six million to one, or six billion to one, right? Because if other people's happiness and goodness is a cause for our own happiness, well, then there are a lot of opportunities to feel good. You know how that is. Like That's why the, even the local news, you know, every once in a while, when there's not enough fear to sell, they sell goodness, right? They find some uplifting, wholesome story, and they put it on the news. And it can be quite moving. You know, you... It, even if it's a little like uh, overly done, it's like really nice to hear stories of people doing good things. It makes us feel good. And that's how, this is part of the science of goodness, just to notice that. Because we don't, generally we don't respect it, like why should I feel good? We sort of don't trust it. But we want to we really get the science because it's a way to cultivate wholesome energy, a really stable energy for our lives. Just like we could do the opposite, where we could dwell or indulge in thoughts that are negative and self-centered, like I'm no good, I've never been good, my parents don't, don't love me, my partner doesn't love me, nobody respects me. We could indulge in those sort of thoughts, which is a form of self-hatred or self-violence, and it's those are very self-centered thoughts, even though they're negative, they're very self-centered, and they're deadening, as we all know. You know, in the various ways that we get involved in that kind of thinking, we know how deadening it is. Whether we're hating ourselves or hating another person, it's really deadening. But if we start reflecting on gratitude, or the beauty in the world, or kindness in the world, or kindness in our own heart, it's enlivening. And all of a sudden, it has all kinds of implications. When we're reflecting in that way, with that kind of mind, the tendency is to open up, to be less defended. And the more open and less defended we are, the more beauty we see, the more goodness we see in ourselves and around us. In the same way, the more tight we are, the less we'll see. And mostly, we just see what confirms our attitude. And if we're in a really negative attitude, We tend to see all the bad things in the world. So in terms of the the actual practice of goodness, Ajahn Tomato talks about reflecting on our interrelatedness. And this is one of the most subtle concepts, practices in Buddhism, is what sometimes called um, 
codependent origination or dependent origination. It's translated in different ways. But it's this basic principle that this moment arises conditioned by all preceding things. So there is this moment uh, we're sort of uh, co-authoring. Unavoidably, we co-author each other's existences. There's no way to avoid that. We're all co-authoring everything. Nothing is apart from the whole. And of course, we can make a science of this. This is another reflection, reflecting on conditionality, or sometimes we call this karma. It's related to the concept of karma, that intentions, intentional actions have consequences. This is how we're relating. We relate with our intentions. And we all share the results of our intentional actions, intentional thoughts. We all share in those results. Now, I more directly share in the results of my intentions, and you more directly receive the results of your intentions. But you also receive the results of my intentions. If I have a lot of negative intentions, it not only affects me, it affects those around me. And then, through ripple effects, out into the world, and in the same way. So, in the science of goodness, we cultivate this understanding of interrelatedness. Again, not to be good, but to in a very deep way to take care of ourselves and to take care of the world, basically to take care of all things. So it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. The benefit from studying the science of goodness and, and now specifically the science of interrelatedness is that it really takes care of us. You know, just in terms of our participation in the economy, and, you know, it's like uh, we can have this scarcity mentality that I need to get something. Or, you know, there's lots of things at Target. Why, should, why shouldn't I have that? I can afford it. Why shouldn't I buy that object that I want? But we can have this thought you know, even with parking spots, we can have the spot that if I don't take that spot, that means somebody else gets that spot. You know? I can drive to my job downtown and take a spot, but I could take the bus and then somebody else gets that spot. Well, that's sort of nice. So in all the different ways, like uh, uh, being simple in our lives, not consuming as much, we can think of everything that we don't consume as a gift. It's like we're, we're leaving it for somebody else to have. You know, we don't buy the candy bar, and we can just think, well, I'm leaving it for somebody else to have. Or, we, of course, we could buy it and give it to somebody else. <laughs> but just to have that idea that there's no way to avoid interrelating. Everything we do has consequences. You know, whether we buy something or don't buy something, whether we drive quickly on the freeway or drive more moderately on the freeway. 
absolutely everything we do, whether we clean up after ourselves or don't clean up after ourselves, whether we buy things with a lot of packaging or we buy things that have less packaging. And you see, it kind of uh, brings up a quality of responsibility. And this is really great. Now, we, we might think this is a cause for heaviness, that we want to see. Actually, it feels really good to act in a way where, with this intention to take care of all things, all beings. It feels good. It doesn't mean it's simple, like we know what to do. But it doesn't actually matter so much what we do. It, what matters more is that the intention is to act in a way that takes care of everybody. There's this wonderful line. Some of you have heard me read this before. Uh, Houston Smith was a well-known scholar. He, more, Toward the end of his career, he was a professor at MIT in Massachusetts in a religion, comparative religions. And, he was really into actually practicing, studying, and practicing the various world religions. He went to Japan and did some sashin, some Buddhist retreats there. And he studied Islam. And he was born a Methodist. And I know when he was in St. Louis, he studied at the Vedanta Center, which was started by Swami Vivekananda, an Indian monk who went to the United States around the turn of the century, around 1895 or something. He went over and opened a number of centers around this country, Vedanta centers in the yogic tradition. And a number of other traditions, of course, he practiced in as well. And after one Sashin, one Buddhist meditation retreat he did in Japan, he asked the Zen master, you know, what is the meaning of Zen? What is the meaning of Dharma practice, we could say? Buddhist mindfulness practice. And this teacher responded, infinite gratitude for all things past, infinite service to all things present, and infinite responsibility for all things future. And to me, this is a wonderful definition of interrelatedness. <clears throat> to understand that whatever goodness, whatever value this life has, it's only because of what we've received. Right? From everything past. That doesn't mean our parents did a perfect job or our culture did a perfect job or our physical body is doing a perfect job, the genes that we have, the genetic information, that it's perfect. It just means that whatever there is that's good in our life, it was all a gift. It's not like it's really mine in any real sense of the word. And so we have gratitude for everything that's good in our life. Even, you know, sometimes we have, we can be confused with this idea of good karma, like, oh, I have really good karma, you know, I'm, I'm relatively smart, I'm relatively healthy, I have good friends, I live in a safe place. Boy, I must have done really good things in the past to deserve this. Now, in a Buddhist sense, there were good things done in the past, like this relatively, in my sense, you know, from my perspective, this is a relatively good situation I'm in. And that just didn't happen accidentally. It's not random. It doesn't seem like anything's really random. So that means that this good situation came to be because it was set in motion in the past. And it can be, we can sort of look at it in a self-centered point of view and say, well, 
I deserve all this because I did all that in the past. You know, somehow I was connected to all that stuff in the past and that led to all this good fortune now. But that that's probably not the deepest way to understand it. The deeper way to understand it is there were good things done in the past and they're leading to this good situation here and now. And we can be really grateful for those good things that were done in the past. And that, that really makes us feel uh, like we want to take care of the present and be responsible for setting something in motion that's good in the, for the future. Because whoever or whatever this mark, this person that's right here now, whatever we are right now, whatever allowed this to be the way that it is, that wasn't us in any real sense of the word. I mean, there's a continuity. This, this process of interrelatedness is, has a sense of continuity. But it's not, it's not really, it's just kind of delusion to think that, well, I deserve it. Because then you know what we do. The people that are suffering, what do we say about them? They deserve that. They must have, they must have been bad in the past. You see how separating that is? So we practice being grateful for all things past and uh, serving all things present, really doing our best to take care of all things present. And that's really our way of being responsible for all things future. One of probably the most potent ways to practice interrelatedness you know, in, in terms of the science of goodness, is to start uh, recognizing the effects of our mind states on those around us. Not all, I mean, in particular, notice the effects of our mind states on ourselves, but then on those around us. I mean, we know what it's like to walk in a room with a bunch of angry people, what it feels like. It's like we want to get out of there. If we're sensitive enough, we just want to get out of there. I don't know if you've uh, recently been in some places where the energy is really negative, but especially if you're in a more sensitive place, not so distracted, you can really feel it walking into a place where there's a lot of negativity. I remember I was on retreat during 9-11. I was in Burma, so I was really away from everything. I left in July and I came back in December, uh, late December. And uh, it was interesting coming back into the country and uh, just aware of the media. And, and it was like the feeling was really different. It felt dead. The energy felt a little dead. Just be, I think, you know, because of the pervasiveness of fear and reactivity, confusion. And, you know, we don't necessarily notice it if it changes, if we're sort of in the middle of the, the thing. But if we're not and we step into it, then we have more of a sense of how, uh, how destructive it can be. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho on, on this interrelatedness. He says, if someone is a selfish, small-minded being, they may think, 
I'll get what I can for myself, even if it's at the expense of everyone else. They scheme, manipulate, and control circumstances for their own benefit at the expense of everyone else. That's what, what people do when they don't have a sense of personal responsibility in their lives. In our modern age, personal responsibility has been a rather unpleasant issue for some people. It's been an issue to be avoided. And a little later in that section he says, In the West, our attachments have become complicated. Not only do we demand physical security, shelter, food, clothing, and medical care, but we also demand all kinds of other opportunities. We demand education, freedom to do what we want, time to live our lives in our own way, and also the opportunity to develop our individual talents and abilities. We expect so much, and yet how much have we offered? What can we offer back? Is there perhaps something each one of us should do in order to give back? What is it that we need to know in order to stop acting like a perennial child, endlessly demanding nourishment and safety from mother? It's, I think it's really impressive because I think it's so rare to see that attitude you know, among an ordinary person that you'd run into that sense of being responsible for the country, responsible for the culture, responsible for the ills or the suffering around us, and how easy it is to avoid that, to feel like, you know, listen, I'm a little bit overwhelmed taking care of my own needs, and I really don't have time for the needs of those around me or the needs of the country as a whole. I mean, I'm sure if we did a quick poll of people in this room, I bet a majority of people probably feel like um, the country is maybe not going in a good direction. But how many of us, and I'm not saying we can, you know, move to Washington and run for Senate, or, but, but how easy it is to basically believe the idea that there's nothing I can do. It's not my responsibility. I didn't screw it up. You know, I didn't vote for them <laughs> or something like that. And, and in a way, like, uh, I've just got to stay really focused on my own well-being. And of course, we think that because we think it leads to happiness. And so this is the whole point of the, the, this chapter that Ajahn Sumedho wrote, is, is to just be very honest with ourselves. Does it actually lead to happiness? Or are we happier uh, taking responsibility for all things? And you know, our life might not even look that much different than it does. It may be just that we've changed the attitude we have when we do our job at work, when we're walking down the street, when we're shopping, when we're doing all the things that we already do. It may be more about the intentions in the mind than actually how we spend our time. Or it might mean that we change what we do. Another practice, you know, in the science of goodness, another particular reflection and you can take this one up instead of the others that I've mentioned so far. 
don't feel like you have to take up all of these reflections. So there's the reflection on interrelatedness. Another reflection to take up is uh, about taking sides, having strong opinions. So part of the science of goodness is noticing the violence and having strong views. Now this is a more subtle way of dividing up the world, basically, between good and bad. My idea versus your idea. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have opinions. It's really more about how we hold the opinions that we do have, whether they're fixed. And and in our mind, there's a very clear sense of this is right, which unavoidably means that, therefore, you're wrong, or whoever disagrees with me is wrong. Instead, we can hold it a little bit more lightly. And just understand that the particular view that we have, even though in this moment it may appear to be right, this is the right view, that we can hold right with that sense that this is the right view, that this is the right view right now, given the conditions of this mind right now. And when the conditions change, when the information changes, when the context is different, then the view may be different. My opinion may be different. So there's no sense that there has to be consistency with our opinion. That we're very happy to let the world, to let our flow of experience continually re, uh, co-author our views and opinions. That they never have an end point, but they're just evolving as circumstances, as our life experience continues, you know, then we know things that we didn't know. And we're always sort of happy to hear and, and try to um, empathize with other people's views and where they're from and their life experience. So that also can inform our opinions and views. Basically, this is called mindfulness practice. You know, just being open and sensitive. Open and sensitive to our own minds, which means we're seeing the limitations of our thoughts and opinions. We're seeing that they're just conditioned phenomena, meaning we may think this view that we have or this political opinion that we have is right, but if we're being mindful, we understand that that view just arose due to causes and conditions. My ninth grade civics teacher said this, that sent me in this direction, so I had this set of experiences and these influences, and then I got sort of, what's that psychological term, uh, cognitive dissonance, you know? The more we defend a particular view, the more we think it's right. You know, if we go to war to protect the United States, just because we've been involved in that tremendous effort, you know, being in war, fighting, doing things, we just start thinking the United States is worth defending. We might not have thought about that at all until we got drafted or joined the army and fought. And this is true with our opinions, you know. The more we have arguments defending our opinions, the more important and right our opinions seem. And so we have to just be aware of the causes and conditions that lead us to have the opinions and views that we have and just understand that in a different set of circumstances, we'd have a different opinion. Instead of watching Democracy Now! or listening to Democracy Now!, we'd be watching Fox News or something else.
another point that Ajahn Tomato makes in this chapter is about taking responsibility. It's a sort of a further refinement of that. And that it really relates to fearlessness about this science of being good, which is once we understand it, once we sort of start having some in- intuition about goodness and the uh, energy, joy that comes from goodness, then there's a, a fearlessness that we're willing to be good no matter what everybody else is doing. This is actually a real test for um, how, like it's, it's relatively easy if we could plop ourselves down in the middle, you know, if we could think of the ultimate nice community, a bunch of wise Buddhist monks or nuns, you know, there we are living right in the middle of that beautiful, wholesome monastery where everybody's sweet and wise and calm and, uh, you know, caring. And, well, it would be really easy to be kind in that setting. So the question is, when we're not in that environment, you know, and everybody else is being greedy or complaining or gossiping, that what... Uh, you know, what's our action, what are our actions or thoughts like? I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been Nisargadatta, a famous Indian saint who died, you know, maybe 30 years ago. And uh, somebody was complaining to him, I think it was him, that uh, he's having a lot of trouble with his mother or his, in- his mother-in-law. I forget exactly who it was. And just saying, you know, he's tried everything to be loving, but she just won't let me love her. (laughs) And then this teacher says, she can't stop you from loving her. And this is, we could just sort of extend this, that the world can't stop us from being good. There's no particular circumstance that we can be in the middle of that can actually stop us from being good, from being patient, from being generous, from being understanding, like really understanding that oh, this is how it is now, that this is just the natural, unavoidable unfolding of causes and conditions. And given those causes and conditions, this moment, this circumstance, it can't be different than this. There's nothing actually, ultimately, in the way of a human being being wise and compassionate in any given moment. Or we could say the only thing in the way is ignorance. It's like not thinking it's possible, basically. Thinking or rationalizing avert fear, confusion, or greed. That's what's in the way, is that due to ignorance, we rationalize these habits of ours that we have. And I'll just end by reading um, at the end of this chapter, at the end of all these chapters, Ajahn Tomato um, answers somebody's question. So he has a few question and answers. And somebody asks, sometimes it's not very popular to do what, what is good. How can we find the courage to live a moral life? And Ajahn Tomato says, it has become apparent to me that it is better to die than to do something evil because we're all going to die anyway. Death is going to meet every one of us, so it doesn't really make that much difference when it happens. But evil actions are going to haunt us all of our remaining life. 
even if we live to be a hundred years old, if we commit heedless and selfish actions, that memory will haunt us through the rest of our life, making our life miserable. Now we know this because you know all of us have made mistakes in the past, and we know what that feels like to have made mistakes. When it became apparent to me that it was better to die than to do evil, I could see that death is nothing to fear. It is the natural process, something all of us will experience anyway. But evil action is what is truly dangerous to us. This is what we should be most wary of. Once we realize that the most important thing is the moral quality of our speech or action, it becomes easier to find the courage to do what is good. So the question is, can we take that instruction without getting tight about it? Like, I better be good or I'm going to really suffer. Because then we're not practicing being good, we're practicing being fearful. So the good really needs to arise. It's really the goodness of our intention. But there can be a vigilance about it. And that's really the art of practice, being vigilant. Like, but the vigilance really can be arise from like recognizing the possibility of happiness and energy and joy that can come from being good, as opposed to, you know, the fear of, of damnation. I mean, that works too. It's just not as an effective teacher as, as sort of appreciating the possibility of living a wholesome, happy, joyful life. But if that doesn't work for us, then we can always have the fear of damnation. Because that's true. We should know that uh, if we act with greed and anger and fear, we will set in motion heaviness and uh, and unpleasantness for ourselves and others. Not, so it's not only that we're going to mess up our own unfolding existence, but we're going to, through ripple effects, make it harder for other people to be happy. <coughs> so I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from one another. Maybe you have thoughts from your own life or experiences in your own life where you've learned some of these lessons of interrelatedness or not taking sides taking responsibility, practicing this science of goodness, mistakes and successes, or any questions that you have about the talk tonight, what comes to mind? Maria.
doing what I'm doing intellectually, but but something suffers, and it's not. It's maybe it's just the ego. The ego is wounded. Um, but the wounds are so. Sometimes the wounds are so profound that the behavior, the the positive behavior, stops for a long time. Yeah. In spite of, in spite of my kind of knowing better. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just an ethical issue. You know, it's a, it's an emotional issue as well. Um, and I guess those two things are. Yeah. And so it's just a question of how do you cultivate the good in that that kind of a situation. And you know, there's there's sort of different angles on it. Like one thing, basically we begin the reflection, like we use our life situation, like when you describe Maria, we use it so it's like what's ever potent in that situation, we use that because whatever is potent, that's the easy thing to pay attention to. So in your situation, the potent thing is the hurt that you're experiencing right now. Like you described it as feeling a little deadened by the by the the insult that you re, you received. Now it's it's relatively easy then to turn that using uh, reflection. So reflection is we're, we're basically what reflection means is we're looking at the the present moment experience and trying to discern sort of. Uh, universal insights like uh, understanding the fabric of the mind-body thing that we that we have here and so one of the things you can discern is how harmful negativity is because you have direct proof right now in your heart this person's judgment has caused this pain and you can just really let that principle in and what does it do to us is that it isn't it tells us that if I judge this person or another person, they're likely to feel like I'm feeling. And being sensitive, being intimate with how I'm feeling, we don't want anybody else to have to feel this way. So right then and there, we can have the intention not to want to continue this cycle where one person's insult leads to another human being insulting somebody else that person right back or we take it out on our dog or and it just sort of sets continues this sort of process where we're creating harm and see you see that doesn't require some sort of gymnastic leap that you sort of go from feeling really hurt and heavy to all of a sudden having to be a good person loving kind person but you just use the weight the pain you feel and, and basically you're transmuting it into compassion by understanding that, wow, just as this negativity has really hurt this heart, I care about this. So I don't want to, just like I care about this, I don't want to do anything that might do this to some other being or that might further this for my own heart. So then that, that makes the mind heart more sensitive, like not to want to make a mistake. So it's really, this is a great thing about the basic impulse toward mindfulness, the movement towards being aware, is that it naturally leads to wisdom. It's like just opening. So we're not even trying to figure out the situation, but just 
becoming more and more intimate with the pain that we're having. See, what we tend, the mistake we tend to do is we tend to go right into some solution. So when we're hurt, usually the solution is to defend ourselves. But instead, with the impulse of mindfulness, instead of defending ourselves, we just feel it. And that's the cause for compassion to arise and to not to want to continue. And the, the way we express compassion is we, do, we don't want to do anything that's going to continue this kind of suffering, this kind of hurt. And then we feel that's beautiful to have that intention, to not want to be the cause for more suffering. That's beautiful. And so all of a sudden we start to feel better because we're, we feel ennobled. We trust our heart. And so even though it still hurts that the person insulted us, we also feel good that we're not sort of in the dirt, in the mud, fighting it out. That we just, we just don't want to go there. It's just not useful to go there. We know that. We may not know what to do. But we know that we shouldn't do that. Other thoughts people have from your lives that you'd like to share? Maybe some examples of goodness, you know, kind actions that have really continue to support you, just the memory of them. It's interesting to me to, to meditate on the idea that, you know, causes and conditions come up and, and I realize that they, they're like a, that in a sense I'm like a wave rather than a particle of moving through time and space based on these causes and conditions and then to turn it around and use it in when I'm interacting with other people and just pulling away from the notion that I'm defending something in a given negotiation or whatever and, say, and trying to figure out where the flow of energy is going to be the best and it, it's, it's, it's liberating in a way to see that there is, that actually does exist, there is a point where the flow, where it flows and it's not arbitrary. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a feeling rather than, I think, when I'm in a bad place, I tend to think as much as I can get for myself. And, and then I can destroy the flow of whatever I'm trying to do with the other person. But it's interesting to me that, I can, that it comes up, that I can realize that there's no real boundary for me. That I, there's no real boundary between me and just experience, and, and then turn it around and interact with someone and, and use that same sort of mindset to make things work better. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's no end to that kind of reflection that Jim talks about. I, I remember a, a scene from Carlos Castaneda's book where his teacher, Don Juan, tells him he has to find his power spot tonight or he's going to die. He's like on the porch and... And then the, his teacher goes to sleep in the side, and Carlos Castaneda totally believes him and is freaking out, trying to figure out, like, where is his power spot in his sitting? Is this it? You know, and eventually he just collapses with exhaustion on fear and 
goes unconscious and the next morning the teacher walks out on the porch and kind of kicks him with his foot and says, ah, I see you found your spot. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's, believe it or not, that's somehow related to Jim's story or Jim's comments. <laughs> but it's like, um, you know, we can get tight about the science of goodness trying to do it right. And there's, there's something about just understanding that the intelligence that we need is not personal. And I, that's kind of what, one of the things I heard you talking about, that there is an intelligence that we can tap into, but it's not a personal intelligence. And uh, so a lot of the practice is getting out of the way. Like the practice, the science of goodness is more about getting out of the way. It's really about weeding out the self-centered intentions more than it is cultivating some sentimental goody good intention like you know how do I generate a goody good intention in my life it's much more about weeding out the fear the greed the competition and uh, and then just letting go sort of trusting what the the momentum of what's there when the greed and the fear and the anger and the confusion isn't there one last example of that that I love. Um, Sharon Salzberg as a young woman. She, I think, was 19 or something like that. She was going to take a year off from school, college, and go to India to study meditation. She was at uh, one of the state universities in New York State. And, and Trungpa Rinpoche, a well-known Tibetan teacher, was traveling around giving talks. And he was giving talk at her university. And she went, heard the talk, and afterward went up to him and said, listen, I'm going to India. I want to learn to meditate. Uh, can you tell me some good places to practice or good teachers? And Trungpa Rinpoche had this great answer to her, which is, in these matters, it's best to leave things to the pretense of chance. Isn't that great? And um, it's like just the intention to want to practice meditation, to be willing to do, that that's enough. And... Uh, and not to be so concerned about the right teacher or the right place. Or now, I'm not saying that you know we shouldn't do our homework in life, but ultimately, it isn't about figuring out what's right or wrong, as much as it is about getting to know unwholesome intentions and not trusting those, just letting those go. And then slowly, as Jim was suggesting, we start to have an intuitive sense of wholesome intentions. But those wholesome intentions are, we kind of make them into something. We call it patience or genera, you know, a generous intention or a kind intention. But if we're really honest with ourselves, it's much more about what's not there than that there is a kind intention that we can point to or a generous intention or a wise, you know, there's like wisdom there. It's much more about what's not there. But we can intuitively recognize when those unwholesome strains aren't there. So it's not that we can't recognize it, but it's not so much what we're seeing, it's what we're not seeing that kind of tells us this is trustworthy, that we can just trust this. And I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a moment and let go of the word. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.